Good day, sir. I am Patrick Henry from Hanover County. I've come to see you about my law examination. Mr. Wythe has already given me his signature, and I was hoping- Good sir, I implore you, please do not speak another word. I must attend to multiple urgent matters around the house. I am bound for business out of town, and I cannot attend to this matter today. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderoftheseven.com. Well, gang, I want to get right to it today, as I already have a lot on my plate. So uh, let's welcome our hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. I say, that was rather abrupt. Sorry, Nigel. And today's episode features Chapter 38 of The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, entitled Barely Passing the Bar. Slow down, lad. No, I'm glad you have a look on your plate, lad. But did you fill me doggy dish, too? Oui, uh, my petite bowl also must be filled, and, uh, well, uh, the litter box does not clean itself, monsieur. Yeah, I remembered to feed you all. Uh, fresh water, too, I presume. Of course, Nigel, but I still have to change the litter. And boy, this is just scratching the surface. Uh, scratching the surface is my job. You need to clean the whole box. Yes, I'm aware of that, Liz. But first, I need to buy you some more litter. Ah, Liz, just go outside like I do. Problem solved. In fact, I don't even go out. Just do as... Ah, well, then, uh, uh, perhaps not. Let's just stick with the litter box, Nigel. So, yeah, I have to buy litter, and we're getting low on cat food, too, so I could stand to get some more, except I have a coupon that if I wait till next week, I can use it then. Plus, Max could use a trip to the groomer, and both of you guys are due for your booster shots. Plus, I have an important meeting that I need to get dressed up for, but my shoes need polishing, and... Uh, I say, the old boy seems to be on autopilot or something. I have such a hard time finding shoes. Oui, somebody is way shoes. too so busy. it just be better just to polish them, or I could wear the brown ones, but then they don't go... Hey, but blue how do we turn them off, then? I need input from all of you for next month's episodes. I already need to go through some of the rough drafts that you gave me the other day and develop those ideas. Plus, Miss Jenny has me working on another audio book, uh, which is sure? time-consuming. And, of course, our anniversary is coming up, and I have no idea where to take Mrs. Announcer last I say, announcer chap. But she deserves something nice, but we... Still need to watch the budget. Uh, Plus, this is a lad, time at church, and I'm already on two uh, Now they want me to Stop! Ah, there, peace and quiet. So, uh, now, monsieur, why do you not just take things one at a time, eh? Uh, monsieur announcer? I say, it's not responding. Aye, just sitting there all glassy eyed. Perhaps we should poke him with a stick. Nigel! Well, my dear, have you got a better idea? Uh, we, we should begin today's chapter. Aye. Uh, fortunately, announcer lad got it recorded ahead of time. Indeed, when he apparently had a bit more of a flexible uh, schedule. Uh, so, Max, you know what to do, no? Aye. Just mash button number one. Here we go. Chapter 38. Barely Passing the Bar. Williamsburg, April 3rd, 1760. 
Nigel struggled to keep up with Patrick as he walked briskly down Nicholson Street to the impressive home of Peyton Randolph, located in Market Square at the intersection of North England Street. Sir John Randolph, the only colonial born in Virginia to be knighted, had willed the deep red wooden home to his son Peyton, who had lived there since a child and now resided with his wife. The expansive home overlooked the green fields behind the courthouse, the busy market area, and the traffic coming and going on Duke of Gloucester Street. Peyton was appointed Attorney General for the Colony of Virginia, just as his father before him. A cousin of Thomas Jefferson, Peyton was highly respected in Williamsburg and the House of Burgesses for his exemplary service to the colony. Peyton's younger brother, John, lived on the south side of town, but Patrick hoped he would not have to even see John Randolph for the examination. If he could get Peyton to sign his law license, Patrick would be able to skip the fourth interview and call it a day. Patrick walked right up to the house and knocked on the front door. When he didn't get an answer, he listened and heard several voices coming from the back side of the house. He walked around the corner where the numerous outbuildings buzzed with activity. Two female servants argued over some matter in the two-story brick kitchen. One of the horses was acting up in the stable. A wheel had broken on the carriage outside the coach house, and a servant boy had accidentally knocked over a bucket of fresh milk in the dairy. In the midst of all this chaos, the heavy-set Peyton Randolph barked orders to bring some sanity back to each area of trouble. This was clearly not a good time for Patrick to approach Peyton Randolph about his law license. Don't do it, old boy, Nigel thought as he watched Patrick walk right through the middle of the busyness in the Randolph household and up to the man who was trying to bring order to his chaotic morning. Samuel, run down to the wheelwright and ask him to come address this loose fitting iron immediately. I paid him handsomely for this new wheel and I expect him to fix it post haste. I have business to attend to in Yorktown and need to leave as soon as possible. Peyton ranted. Turning to the kitchen, he chided, Betsy, I do not care who was supposed to buy the flour. You go to the market and get it this instant. Mrs. Randolph is expecting company for afternoon tea, and she must have her biscuits on schedule. He took out his handkerchief and dabbed his cheeks and double chin. As he turned to walk to the stable, there stood Patrick Henry in his way. Good day, sir. I am Patrick Henry from Hanover County, Patrick told him, holding out his certificates. I've come to see you about my law examination. Mr. Wythe has already given me his signature, and I was hoping... Peyton shut his eyes and held up both hands, his damp handkerchief flapping in the breeze. Good sir, I implore you, please do not speak another word, he insisted with an agitated voice. He took in a deep breath, regained his composure, and opened his eyes, taking a good look at the bedraggled young man whose appearance was a walking picture of how his morning was going. He placed his hand over his heart. I do not wish to be rude, but as you can clearly see, I must attend to multiple urgent matters around the house. I am bound for business out of town, and I cannot attend to this matter today. Patrick's face fell. I understand. I, I could come back tomorrow if you wish. No, young man. I will be unavailable then as well, Peyton answered, taking a step toward the stable where he heard the voices of men trying to settle the upset horse. He stopped, turned, and looked Patrick in the eye. You say you have a signature from Mr. Wythe. 
What about Mr. Nicholas? Patrick tightened his lips and shook his head. Uh, Mr. Nicholas declined. Peyton Randolph put his plump hand on the young man's arm. Then go to my brother John and tell him I said to see you today. I am sorry, but that is the best I can do. I wish you success. Please, excuse me, I have another urgent matter to address. Good day. With that, he quickly bowed, turned, and left Patrick standing alone in his courtyard while he walked into the stable. Patrick blew a raspberry and left the chaotic house to walk toward the south side of Williamsburg. He had one more chance for a signature today. He couldn't afford to stay another night or two at the tavern, and he felt that coming back to see Peyton Randolph any time soon would be a mistake. Well, Mr. John Randolph, it is now up to you, Patrick thought, and I do not plan to take no for an answer. Cato had followed Patrick and the tiny mouse scurrying along behind him, but Nigel was falling behind. Patrick was heading for the home of John Randolph and had to pass the green behind the courthouse, cross over Duke of Gloucester Street, pass the magazine, and head down South England Street. Cato landed on the back side of the magazine and called to Nigel, who turned and waved. Cato lifted off and scooped Nigel up gently in his talons. "'Thank you for the lift, old boy!' Nigel exclaimed. "'I was getting rather winded from the jaunt to the next Randolph residence.' Cato landed in a tree above John Randolph's house and put Nigel on the branch. So, what happened? After all that time in the With house, Patrick has zipped through the next two examiners. Does he have three signatures? Only one, I'm afraid, from Mr. With, Nigel reported. Mr. Nicholas declined our Patrick, and Peyton Randolph is in the midst of putting out too many fires to bother with the aspirations of an unpolished, unknown country lad seeking a position at the bar. John Randolph is his last chance to get that law license signed today. Cato frowned. Then the human must cooperate. Patrick must have that signature. Nigel placed his paw on the eagle's wing. Do not ruffle your feathers just yet, old chap. There is still hope. I must get down there and see what transpires. Please pick me up when we exit the house, and Cato, pray. The little mouse scurried down the tree, and the eagle remained in the branches, eagerly awaiting the outcome below. Patrick stood at the front door belonging to John Randolph, Esquire, and whispered a silent prayer. Lord, if you have called me to this, please, then help me accomplish it. A servant answered the door, and Patrick mustered his most convincing smile and look of confidence. Good day. My name is Patrick Henry. I have just come from the home of Mr. Peyton Randolph, who beckoned me to seek an audience immediately with his brother for my law examination. I have already met with Mr. Wythe, who signed my license, followed by a meeting with Mr. Nicholas. He smiled and held up his certificate of recommendation and law license, but the servant curiously only took the certificate. The servant smiled with her warm and comforting blue eyes. Good day, Mr. Henry. Come in, and I will let Mr. Randolph know you are here. Patrick suddenly felt a faint sense of familiarity with this servant girl, as if he had met her before. Something about her eyes? She held open the door and took Patrick's hat. Nigel hid behind a column on the porch, and she caught his eye, nodding to the little mouse to come inside. "'By Jove, it's Clary!' Nigel exclaimed happily under his breath. 
He saluted her and scurried inside as she shut the door. Patrick stood in the foyer with his hands folded in front of him, looking around at the paintings adorning the walls, trying to appear interested. Inside, his stomach was churning. He could hear the servant speaking to John Randolph in his study. "'Excuse me, Mr. Randolph, but there is a Mr. Patrick Henry of Hanover County here to see you,' Clary explained. "'He has just come from your brother's house with the request for you to please interview this young man for his law license.' He has also met with and received a signature from Mr. Wythe. He comes highly recommended by the Justices of Hanover. She proceeded to hand the certificate to John Randolph. Nigel listened and wrinkled his brow. Did she just say that Peyton signed his law license? He shook his head and mumbled to himself as he repeated her words in his mind. He realized she had not specifically said so, but it could be easily inferred that Peyton had already signed the license along with With. 32-year-old John Randolph, one of the most well-educated attorneys in Virginia, lifted the certificate and gave it a cursory glance, nodding as he read the names of Hanover justices. He's just been seen by Peyton? Eh, very well, send him in. Clary turned and went to the foyer. Mr. Henry, please come in. Mr. Randolph will see you now. Patrick smiled and entered the study of John Randolph. Clarie quickly shut the door as she left the room. She looked around and saw Nigel poke his head out from under the settee. She squatted down next to him. Nigel, Patrick will need to fight for his life in there. She held up her finger. Wait for it. What do you mean coming in here looking like this? John Randolph roared from the other side of the door. Nigel put his paws up to his mouth. Oh, dear, Ms. P. worried about Patrick's careless appearance. Sir, if you will please allow me a moment of your time, Patrick insisted. In order to serve the profession of law, one must uphold the dignity of the law, and one cannot do so if such little respect is paid to one's appearance, John continued, ignoring Patrick's pleas. I understand, sir, and I do not blame you for your admonishment of my travel-worn appearance, Patrick fired back. Mr. Wythe was put off as well by my appearance, but he was able to set that aside as I explained my situation. Our time together ended well, with him affixing his signature on my license. Please, Mr. Randolph, I implore you to allow me this interview. Ask whatever you wish, and I shall answer you with the utmost respect in my voice, if not in my appearance. I assure you, I am no cunning Tom Bell or Bamfield Moore Carew. And if I might be so bold to say so, Tom Bell fooled Williamsburg's most respected citizens with his fancy clothes and genteel manners. Yet he was not what he seemed to be, and made off with their money and possessions. Patrick held out his arms wide. I may appear the opposite in finery of Tom Bell, but I assure you, my motives and desire to become a respectable man of the law are sincere. Please, allow me to prove myself to you. Nigel cupped his ear against the door. He's thrown out the names of two notorious con artists and is challenging Randolph to prove his character as true. John sat back in his seat and rested his elbows on the arms of his chair, holding his chin with the tips of his fingers. He slowly shook his head as he studied Patrick. Hmm. Tom Bell. That scoundrel stole a watch belonging to a friend of my father. He stole time, Mr. Henry. 
He then leaned forward, and you propose to do the same to me today. However, if my brother and Mr. Wythe saw fit to hear you out and sign your license, I suppose I should give you an audience, albeit brief. If anything, I'm curious as to what they saw in you. Nigel smiled and raised a fist of victory. Huzzah! He's going to let Patrick stay. But he mistakenly believes that Patrick already has two signatures. Amazing how miscommunications like that can happen, Clarie replied with a coy grin. But it's all up to Patrick now. The interview was anything but brief. Over the course of the next few hours, John Randolph mercilessly grilled Patrick, first on municipal law, where he quickly discovered that Patrick clearly lacked knowledge. He moved to philosophy, the law of nature and of nations, policies of the feudal system, and finally to history, where a faint glimmer of hope shone on Patrick at this one area of strength in this interview. Patrick circled back to the topic of impostors and crimes, referencing Tom Bell and the notorious celebrity criminal Bampfield Moore Carew, who had profited from his crimes by publishing his widely read memoirs in London. Patrick explained how, in ancient Rome, three impostors claiming to be Nero rose up following the Roman emperor's strange and swift suicide in A.D. 68, leading to a discussion about the never-changing heart of man. The clothes may change over the eons and across cultures, but man's depraved heart does not. Man's greed for money and power drives him to violate laws and norms of society to attain what he cannot possess by virtue of his own merit. John Randolph grew more and more impressed with Patrick Henry and his ability to maintain a defensive posture for his opinions. He decided to lead him into a discussion of common law, but decided to be a con man himself, pretending to disagree with Patrick on an answer he gave that was absolutely correct. Patrick continued to object and defend his position until finally John got to his feet. You defend your opinions well, sir, John Randolph told him with a frown and a gruff voice. But now to the law and to the testimony. Follow me. He proceeded to open the door, and Nigel ran for cover while Clary stayed out of the way, pretending to arrange some flowers in a vase. Randolph led Patrick into his adjacent office library. Where are they going? Nigel mouthed. Clary shrugged her shoulders, but tiptoed so she could stand just outside the room with Nigel. Randolph opened the heavy, dark, walnut-paneled door into an elegant room that reeked with the prestige of this accomplished attorney. Patrick had just argued and defied the reasoning of one of the most respected attorneys in Virginia. An entire wall of this office was filled floor to ceiling with shelves stocked with law books. Patrick's jaw gaped as he looked up at the enormity of resources in print that covered every aspect of the law. He felt chagrined that he had thought his three books would be sufficient for him to prepare for this examination. He suddenly felt like a fool. Now John Randolph would, with his expert knowledge, destroy Patrick's pitiful attempts at argument. How could I have been so foolish? What was I thinking? He suddenly wanted to run out of Randolph's house and escape before he was humiliated. 
but he knew that humiliation would only follow him home to Hanover, where he would have to tell Sally he had failed at his attempt to become a lawyer. The blood started draining from his face at the thought. John Randolph lifted his ruffled, cuffed hand to the numerous law books and bellowed, "'Behold the force of natural reason! You have never seen these books, nor this principle of the law,' he said as he opened a book to the matter Patrick had been defending. Patrick started to open his mouth to apologize, but John held up his hand to stop him. "'Yet you are right, and I am wrong.' Patrick's face filled with surprise, and his eyes widened. Sir? A grin slowly grew on John's face. He bowed humbly. And from the lesson which you have given me, you must excuse me for saying it, he said as he slowly looked up and down Patrick's ill-fitting, mud-splattered country attire. He chuckled and shook his head. <laughs> I will never trust to appearances again. Patrick was speechless as John Randolph pried the law license signed by George Wythe from his fingers. John chuckled as he walked back to his desk with Patrick following behind him in shock. With both hands, John flipped back his coattails and took a seat. He dipped his fine feather quill in the ink and signed his name to the law license. As he held a stick of wax over a candle and placed a blob onto the parchment with his seal, he declared, Mr. Henry, if your industry be only half equal to your genius, I augur that you will do well and become an ornament and an honor to your profession. He blew on the ink and furrowed his brow as he realized his was only the second signature on the license. He realized that he had assumed differently. Patrick shook his head in shock and disbelief. John Randolph had just signed and sealed his law license, not dressed him down as he expected. He cleared his throat and fought to retain his composure. <clears throat> Sir, I am most humbled and grateful I promise to strive to indeed do honor to the profession of law if I am able to become a fraction of the skilled attorney you are I will have accomplished a great deal thank you for giving me this opportunity John Randolph stood and walked around his desk he held the signed law license up in front of Patrick and once again steeled his expression before handing it over since you were not able to study at the inns of court in London, I shall pass on to you the old saying given to up-and-coming lawyers there. A lawyer must have an iron head, a brazen face, and a leaden breech, John Randolph told him. He then smiled and handed over the license to Patrick. Congratulations, Mr. Henry. You are now a licensed lawyer approved by His Majesty and the Colony of Virginia. Nigel exclaimed, Huzzah! But quickly covered his mouth so he wouldn't be heard. He and Clary exchanged excited glances of joy, and she quickly moved to the front door, anticipating Patrick's departure. She cracked the door, and Nigel slipped outside. Patrick swallowed the lump in his throat, and bowed before taking the license in hand. He held it up 
and smiled broadly. "'Thank you, Mr. Randolph, for giving me this chance. I won't let you down, sir.' "'Very well. Good day, Mr. Henry,' the famous lawyer replied, escorting Patrick to the door. "'But it wouldn't hurt if you bought a new suit after you win your first few cases.' Patrick blushed and nodded as he put on his worn tricorn hat. "'Good advice. Thank you again, sir.' With that, Patrick Henry walked out the front door, no longer the twice-failed merchant, failed farmer, and part-time barkeep. He would now go by a new title, Patrick Henry Esquire, Attorney at Law. Oh, what an incredible day in Mon Henry's life, huh? Indeed, and his methods were, uh, well, uh, it was much different then, getting a law degree than it is today. Aye, and it's sure a good thing the other lawyer lads had more time for him than that Peyton Randolph. We. Oui. And Patrick's incredible gift of persuasion certainly did not hurt either. Uh, but we still have our own dilemma, mes amis. Indeed. Uh, seems announcer chap is still in his catatonic state. Aye, he be steering like a cat. That is not what catatonic means, Max. I just wish we could snap him out of it. I say, let's poke him with a stick. Nigel! It is clear that Monsieur Announcer is overworked, he is stressed out, and it seems that his entire brain has just shut down. <laughs> well, uh, uh, it weren't that big a brain, lass. Oui, but he needs to learn how to cope with a busy schedule before he becomes overwhelmed. And we all know someone else who keeps a very busy schedule, no? Indeed, Miss Jenny. Let's check into Jenny's corner. Uh, Miss Jenny? Max, I understand you have a question for me. Aye, lass. It seems announcer lad has overdone it. He's so stressed out. He's just staring like a cat. That is not what catatonic means. Uh, but he has just uh, checked out, you might say, and we've tried everything to snap him out of it. Well, we haven't tried poking him with a... And we are not going to. Uh, but, uh, Miss Jenny, Monsieur Announcer clearly should have taken a break. Aye. Looks like he waited a wee bit too long, too. So how do you know when it's time to take a break, then? Everybody needs to take a break sometimes, but how do I know when it's time for me to take a break with my writing or demands or appointments or engagements or conferences? Um, you know, I've had to learn to really balance my schedule as an author. You know, many times people say, oh, you write books, and I can just plop down at my computer and just write all day. But what a lot of people don't understand is that's just one of the hats that I wear because to be successful as an author, you have to write well, you have to publish well, and you have to market well. So I always have those three things that I have to juggle. So I have to write well, meaning I have to do all my research, I have to do the writing part well, and then publishing well, I have to work with my editor with my publisher, with my illustrator to work on the production and the release of a book. And then marketing well, I've got to work on oh, what are going to be my speaking engagements at schools or homeschool groups or conventions and so forth. And so it really becomes, I have to have a balancing act of my time to know when to stop a certain activity to get to the next thing 
And sometimes I overload my schedule with events. And of course, that happens when I release a new book, right? Because that's the main time that you want to be out hitting the pavement and telling people all about it. And sometimes that can be really exhausting, but it's so much fun. That's one of the greatest parts about being an author is when it's finally done and going and telling the world about it. Sometimes when I'm just exhausted and I get writer's block, that's a big clue. Hey, Jenny, time to take a break because it's either I'm exhausted or God's like, nope, you got to get to something else in a book over here and you're not going to get to it as long as you're sitting there writing. So, you know, you just have to listen to the cues, listen to your yourself physically. If you're too tired, you need a break. And, and sometimes I, I just have to do that. I have to, I try to make myself get up at least every hour and stretch or run outside and walk to the mailbox or, or whatever it is. But my grandmother always told me, Jenny, take minute vacations. Isn't that a delicious thought? You might not be able to go hop on a plane and go to a beach somewhere in Mexico, but you can take minute vacations and just let your mind and your body and your spirit have a minute off or make it five if you want to. But those breaks are important. It makes me a better author and it makes me a better person all the way around. I say, Miss Jenny, brilliant. Just take a one-minute vacation here and there uh, before this happens. Uh, Monsieur announcer, snap out of it. Um, I have chocolate. Hey, his nose be moving. He is indeed responding to the chocolate. A brilliant idea, my dear. I say he seems to be coming too. Uh, give them an answer. I think the answer is no, but I need to handle that later because now it's time for us to start today's chapter. Uh, no, it isn't, lad. I already handled that part. Oh, well, then uh, it's time we head over to Jenny's corner and I say, uh, been there. Done that. You did? When? When you were off staring like a cat. For the last time, catatonic does not... Catatonic? Indeed, you were rather checked out for a while, old boy. Wow, I must really need a break. Aye, lad, you do. But Miss Jenny told us a great way to do it when you don't have time for Mexico. Mexico? Uh, something like that. She suggested taking one-minute vacations. Indeed. Just take a minute. Ah... There we go. And close your eyes. Aye, uh, that's got it. And dream of being in a special place like the south of France. Ooh la la. That sounds like a great idea. So, uh, Nigel? Nigel, wh where are you right now? Uh, Ma Max, uh, wh what are you picturing? Liz? Nigel? Max? Wow, they are really getting into this one-minute vacation thing. Uh, but but we need to close the show, so uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, guys, um, hmm, maybe I should poke them with a stick. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and the Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. 
And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. And always remember, you are loved and you are able. And, uh, asleep? Uh, Max? Liz? Uh, uh, Nigel? Uh, hmm. Well, perhaps I shall go find that stick. <laughs>